If you will, open your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 18 as we continue our studies there. We have the record today given by God through Luke of Paul's ministry in this city of Corinth, one of the most wicked, most debauched city of the ancient world. So again, the book of Acts chapter 18 will uh, read in just a, a moment, uh, verses 1 uh, through 23. It is right for us on occasion to be disturbed by what we observe in this modern world, in our culture of uh, today. But it would be wrong for us to be overwhelmed, for us to be uh, so discouraged that we would quit. Now, I can make no promise as to the extent of the impact of the gospel uh, in uh, our contemporary world. Uh, maybe it goes far and wide and we see dramatic results, and then again, we may not, but it does not diminish for one second the truth and the power of the gospel. Paul took this gospel into this very decadent city of Corinth, and there he preached the gospel in the face of really insurmountable odds, great wickedness, great opposition, great evil, and yet God accomplished that which He would accomplish because He determined to know nothing among them but Jesus Christ, Him crucified. That indeed, that message was and still is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. That is, that which Paul had at his disposal, namely the Word of God and the Spirit of God, is still at the disposal of the church in these days and for whatever days that God would allot us, again, in the days ahead. And so I would say to you, again, that we should be people who live expectant lives, that we should be encouraged, again, because we have at work within us the Word and the Spirit, and we can apply that very same Word and Spirit into every context in which God would deem it wise and good and for His own glory and for our own good and for the advance of the gospel. He will continue to work with that he, that which he gave the Apostle Paul and to every believer since the Apostle Paul to go into the world and to do this thing upon which the church is built, namely the building of disciples for the glory of God and certainly for the good of men's souls. So let's read. Let's look. Acts 18, verse 1. And after this, 
Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila and a, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them because he was of the same trade. He stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, uh, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they had opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. And Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the Word of God among them. But when Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo uh, said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime... Oh, Jews, I would have a reason to accept your complaint, but since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be the judge or be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, uh, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Galileo paid no attention to any of this. After this, Paul stayed many days longer. And then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria with him, Priscilla and Aquila. And at Sincrea, he had, his, he, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. And after spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Pray with me. Father, once again, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you saw fit to give this to us as a testimony to that which you accomplished in your son, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that we would be faithful to that truth. And God, that spirit which inspired Luke to so faithfully write uh, this text, uh, Lord, I pray that that spirit would be at work in me, giving me illumination and clarity of speech. And then to these people, that they would have understanding and that you would work in us, that we would please you. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul would leave Athens and travel approximately 50 miles to the south, 
uh, to arrive in this notorious city of Corinth. It was a major metropolis in the ancient world. It was located uh, just north of a, a very narrow land bridge connecting Achaia in the north to the southern portion of the Greek peninsula known as the Peloponnesian Peninsula. In truth, Corinth was actually the capital of the region. The ancient city of Corinth was in decline from about 600 B.C. until it was actually destroyed in 146. So the, the Corinth that Paul would arrive at in a 50, 51, 52 A.D., somewhere in that time frame, that Corinth was a, a rebuilt Corinth that had been established uh, in uh, 46 B.C. and then made capital of the region in 27 B.C. Some would say that the kind of the version of Corinth in Paul's day wasn't as debauched as the former Corinth was. Well, whatever the case, it was still a place of great evil. It was still known for widespread immorality, not all of which was associated with the worship of the Greek god of love, Aphrodite, and her 1,000 temple prostitutes. Uh, the name Corinth was actually corrupted to form words descriptive of immorality. To Corinthianize was to be immoral. A Corinthian woman was an immoral woman. And so this great city of about maybe 200,000 people uh, in Paul's day was uh, the site of uh, uh, idol worship and again all manner of corruption and evil. James Boyce, the great Presbyterian uh, pastor of a few years back, uh, described the city as cosmopolitan, corrupt, and commercial. It was the site of what's known as the Ithmian Games, which was an athletic festival, second in prestige, uh, only to that which was held in Athens, uh, namely the, the Olympics. And Corinth was strategically located. Uh, you've got the region of Achaia, again, kind of the northern part of the Greek peninsula. And uh, again, as I've uh, told you my funny story about maps, if you have need to go look at your maps this morning to take a break, uh, you can see exactly uh, where Corinth is located. And there's a, a very narrow land bridge. I'm told it's about three to four miles wide. And you have the, the port of uh, Sancria on the, the west side. And, uh, uh, excuse me, uh, uh, Sancria, yes, on the, on the east side, uh, Lechium on the west side, uh, and these ports were often uh, utilized to disembark from ships. The ship would sail into one port or the other, depending if they were going east or coming west. And so they would come in, and they would actually unload their cargo and transport it by land over to the other sea, and then load it back on the ship to go into the uttermost or the furthest parts of the world. And so certainly uh, militarily and economically, uh, Corinth was a strategic city. It was uh, a, a wealthy uh, city. And again, probably largely because of that strategic location, uh, immorality uh, was rampant. I asked the question, was it the most debauched city in the ancient world? Well, that's a bit like asking is Las Vegas, San Francisco, New Orleans, New York City, Chicago, 
Paris, France. Which one of those is the most debauched city in the world today? Well, I don't know. They're all bad. And so, um, indeed, uh, Corinth was a wicked place. I have defined it over the years. It was, it was prosperous. Again, all of this sea and land transportation and trade that passed uh, through them. Uh, obviously, it was populated. It was a population center. It was perverse. And uh, again, just because of the nature of, of, of our gathering here, I can't say everything that was going on, but I want you to know it was a depraved and vulgar and decadent display that was degrading to all who would participate. This was a terrible place. Sometimes when we read ancient mythology or maybe see movies, it's kind of a, kind of a sanitized version of what went on. But let me assure you, this was a vile place, an unlikely place for the gospel to take root and for a church uh, to be formed. The people that lived in Corinth, they were prideful. They, they, they were pompous. And, and very, this, this deeply ingrained pride is a part of what led uh, them to trouble Paul so deeply upon his departure. And certainly, like the largest part of the Gentile Roman Empire, they were pluralistic. They weren't necessarily opposed to Judaism and not necessarily opposed to Christianity. It was just one of the gods that could be included in the pantheon that was acceptable to Rome. As long as you could say, Kaiser Curios, Caesar is Lord, you could have any other gods you wanted to alongside him. But what is the problem for those who would profess Jesus is Lord? It is a unique confession because there is only one Lord, and that is what ultimately uh, led uh, Christians uh, to be at odds uh, with Rome and, in some sense, every other regime uh, since uh, the Roman Empire. And so Paul comes uh, to, this, uh, to this city, a city that is, even in the ancient world, just think about this for a moment, uh, as, as decadent as all of these cities were throughout the ancient world, Corinth became notorious for how evil it was. I mean, you have really got to be wicked for you to become no notorious even among the wicked. And so we're told that Paul is going to arrive uh, there in uh, Corinth, uh, based on what we saw in 1 Corinthians 2. He, he arrives in fear and trembling. He's had a difficult time. Very interesting. We expect God's will for our lives to be that which brings us peace, success, happiness, kind of, a, you know, happy trails kind of life, best life now, whatever. How did Paul get into Europe? A man from Macedon appears in a vision and says, you need to come over here. God had closed down the other avenues to which he wanted to go and sent him into Europe where persecution and all manner of oppression occurred, yet what? He was right in the center of the will of God. God took him right in the midst of a firestorm. And it, it reminds us, I think, that we indeed should have the mindset of a soldier. Just think about it. If you're enlisted in the armed forces, or whatever branch you would choose, and they decide, I'm, we're going to deploy you. 
And you go, well, listen, I would like somewhere that's warm with lots of palm trees and a nice ocean breeze to keep me cool uh, during the day and where everything is peaceful and quiet and I can enjoy maybe some time away from home. That's typically not where they send soldiers, is it? They send them either to keep the peace or to disturb the peace, so to speak. They, they go there to advance the cause of the nation that has enlisted them. They are, they are called to serve the one who sent them, and again, often to do it at threat of their life in a hostile environment. And maybe we should rework the way we think about our lives in view of how the first generation of Christians and so many other generations have lived. Uh, we expect this society to provide for us a type of peace and safety and no conflict and no concerns. But yet God has enlisted us in His army to go and to fight the battles with Him and for Him that He has declared us as what? the victors, because of the gospel. And so Paul went. Uh, he went as God led, as God uh, uh, took him uh, to this place and the other place. At times we might think he was highly successful. At times we might have, uh, th think he was uh, highly unsuccessful. Uh, but God is the one who ultimately evaluates that, is he not? We will all stand before God. And it will not, we will be evaluated for our faithfulness, not for our productivity, so to speak. And so, while he arrives, or when he arrives in Corinth, he encounters this uh, Jewish couple that had been expelled uh, from the city of Rome. And this particular bit of business is known to us from the secular historians' reports. Uh, uh, one of the Roman uh, historians, Suetonius, tells us that the Jews were expelled by an emperor whose name was Claudius uh, around 49 AD because these Jews were constantly rioting at the instigation of one known as Crestus. Now, some think that was just a name of somebody that was a bit of a rebel rouser there uh, in uh, the city. But I think the majority view is this was a mispronunciation, misspelling, that what was going on is that within Judaism, these Christians were going into the synagogues in Rome and they were declaring that Jesus is the Christ. They were declaring the name of Christus. And just as we saw in the life and ministry of Paul, there was great conflict that would arise. And the Romans, again, really could care less what religion you chose just as long as you were peaceful and paid taxes. And so they would have none of this. And eventually uh, the, Rome, the, the Romans expelled the Jews and they made really no distinction between those who were Christians and those who were Jewish. And so upon the departure uh, from Rome, uh, these natives of the, the region of uh, Galatia, they're, uh, Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, uh, they wind up in Corinth, uh, probably already believers, so the gospel uh, had already uh, been proclaimed uh, in, in Rome, 
And uh, these, this couple becomes uh, Christians, and they go to Corinth. Uh, they're engaged in uh, their trade. Uh, and some people think that this business of tent making uh, might as well have been also, or might be inclusive of being sail makers. And so if you're at a port city, be a nice business to be in, wouldn't it? To be a sail maker. And so, uh, so he goes there, and uh, he has learned that trade. One of the things, Paul was a rabbi before he became the, the great missionary apostle, Paul. And the Jews were noted uh, for insisting that their rabbis learn a trade and be able to work and support uh, themselves. The Pharisees were lay people who were engaged in trades. I mentioned last week probably one of the reasons that the Corinthians would have so much trouble with Paul is because of the prevailing thought in the Greco-Roman world that manual labor and vocations and, and work was something for slaves and common people. It wasn't anything for uh, the, those of the academy, those of the cultural elite. Uh, they shouldn't work like that. And since Paul worked like that, then certainly we should disregard him. And yet he saw fit to engage uh, in this type of labor so that he could uh, support himself. And we've, we've talked about that. We've had occasion on Wednesday night to, uh, to speak to this issue. Why did Paul work with his hands uh, here at Corinth? Why did he often refuse to be supported uh, by, by churches? And I think there's a couple of, of reasons. Uh, one, he wanted to be sure. He wanted to be emphatic that the gospel is, isn't a commercial endeavor. Uh, the gospel is not for sale. The gospel is not a, a profit-making scheme. And so he never sought to be enriched, even provided for, on the basis of the proclamation of the gospel. He also wanted to be, and kind of, these things kind of go together, but he wanted to be clear that he was not of this group that we spoke of a bit last week, the sophist and the rhetoricians. He did not want to be thought of as these very glib, yet empty-headed and surely empty-hearted people that went around talking uh, loud and long about anything and everything and never amounting to anything. And so he wanted to be sure that he was not of that group. In fact, in the uh, Second Corinthian letter, he says, you know, I may not be trained in this manner of speaking, and I, I may not sound real good, but I do believe. In fact, I know I have the Spirit, that God is working through me as I rightly divide the word of truth uh, for uh, you. And so Paul does this, and, but yes, in his writing, he makes very, very clear that those who uh, pastor, that, that serve the church uh, as, as elders have the right, have the privilege of earning a living uh, from uh, that. He mentions that in at least three of his letters, uh, 1 Corinthians, 1 Timothy, and the book of Galatians. Well, let's look here, beginning in verse 4, at the activities. Uh, what was Paul engaged in there in that city? We're told once again, he reasoned in the synagogue. We saw that uh, verb last week, dialegami, uh, the idea of 
dialogue. The English word dialogue comes from this uh, Greek word. So he was willing to ask and answer uh, questions. He was willing to engage in back and forth discussion. And I think uh, that that's an incredibly uh, healthy way of informing and instructing uh, people. And what was he seeking to do? To persuade. To persuade. Now, this word persuade is, is a, a bit of a, an, an interesting uh, word here. And the Greek underneath this, this verb is the Greek patho. And it seems to me that, that, it, it, that uh, our word pathos uh, is uh, uh, a derivative of that. And, and again, uh, the idea of... Uh, 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 engaging someone kind of at every level, at the intellectual and the emotional level, to convince them of the truth. It, 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 it's not just, I, I want to tell you some good stories. I want to convince you that that which I'm telling you is eternally essential truth. A bit like a court case. Imagine a criminal court case. You have a defense attorney and you have a prosecuting attorney. Uh, they're, they're speaking to and about the same event. But one is trying to prove, to persuade that the indicted is guilty and the other trying to persuade that the indicted is innocent, okay? And we don't have to get into a whole lot of the details about that. But, but it's not, I just want to tell you a story, tell you a little bit about my client here. He's a great guy. No, I want to persuade you that what I am telling you is absolute truth and that you will act, in the case of the defense attorney, to acquit, in the case of the prosecuting attorney, to find guilty. Okay? And so uh, Paul is engaged in this business of, and I believe, seeking to passionately persuade those uh, that were under uh, the sound of his voice. Now, where it, it, this is, even in academic circles, even in seminary, you take preaching classes and things like that, typically you'll get into the discussion. Uh, to what degree uh, should we be passionate and to what degree should we be dispassionate, just passing on information? And it's a, it's a great question. And, and to be sure, we don't want the, the smoke of our passion to interfere with the fire of the truth, okay? And, and, and we can be distracting uh, by our tone, by our, our mannerisms. And uh, as y'all y'all been around me long enough to know, I have a hard time not being passionate, okay? Uh, it's just kind of the way I'm wired up. And uh, I'm excited uh, to stand before you each week. There, and, and I don't sit and study each week and go, boy, i got a whole lot of stuff that I, I'm going to tell them and they're going to be impressed about how smart I am. I'm here to persuade you that Jesus is the Christ and that you should live consistently in accordance with the reality that you say you believe that Jesus is the Christ. I'm here to persuade you. I'm not here to waste your time. I'm here to continue because you know what? You know, persuade, those that are persuaded act on their convictions, don't they? And every once in a while, what do we need? We need to fire our convictions, fanned into a flame, don't we? Right? Right, we do. And so we're here to be persuaded to live according to this great truth. In evangelism, to persuade. 
that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. The only hope of eternal salvation. Certainly, we, we, last week, and I'm not, I, I'm not even going to detail this, but we could, we could say just broadly, beginning with the seed of the woman, that's going to crush the seed of the serpent all the way uh, through the king that's going to appear uh, humble and riding on the back of a donkey, that, that what Paul would do would say, here is that which the Word of God says about the Messiah, and here is the life and the career of Jesus Christ. Do you see that Jesus is the one? Persuading on the basis of the evidence, not just on emotion, not just on rhetoric, not just on skillful talk, but persuading on the basis of the truth, on the basis of reality. And so he's working, and he's ministering in the synagogue. Eventually, verse 5, his colleagues arrive from Macedonia, having left them behind as he uh, left quickly. And when they arrive, uh, they supply uh, Paul's needs. And then notice here what happens. Paul was occupied with the Word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. Again, continuing to do the same thing. But now he was, he was occupied in a, in a more full-time devotion, so a, a fully devoted. He, he could take all of his energies and devote it to the study and the testifying that Jesus was Christ. One of the, the great privileges that, that you've given me for uh, almost two decades now is I get to occupy myself with the preparation and then the proclamation of the truth of the gospel. It, it, is, a, it is an enormous, it is an immense privilege that, that, that I get to do that week in and week out. And, and it's with joy that I do it, that, that I, I, I love. I, I love to study and I love to learn, I love to prepare, and I love to tell you about it. And God has blessed me with that uh, opportunity. And so Paul was able to, to be occupied with this business. But look there at verse 6. Now again, God called him into Europe, in, onto the Greek peninsula. So everything's got to go well. It's just going to be hokey-dory. It's going to be smooth sailing, no opposition. Well, no, not so much. Verse 6, the Jews opposed and reviled him. Opposed is an interesting little Greek word. It's anti-tasso. And it, it, it's, a, it's a military term. Now, uh, most of you have um, heard instruction, teaching, preaching uh, from Ephesians 5, regulation of the home, wives, submit yourselves to your own husband. Any of y'all ever heard that passage? Uh, that's what I thought. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, submit the Greek is hupotasso, and it's a military term which means to rank under, okay, to, to rank yourself under. And so we see this same part of the word tasso, it's anti-tasso, okay? And, and again, it is the idea of arraying yourself in kind of a military way to fight a battle. And so what were they doing? They, they were both in an organized and a disorganized way doing whatever they could to oppose Paul in the preaching of, of the gospel. They, they reviled him, and what did he do? He shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. Now, at what point do we do that? 
when we're opposed, when, we're, when the gospel is rejected? Well, the, the technical answer is, I don't know. Right? I don't know when, when, when God will extend the gospel and the invitation to repent and believe, or the command to repent and believe. Um, I don't know when that occurs. But at some point, if you're met with rejection and opposition and hostility, you move to the next field. And as Paul would describe, and we'll be looking at this more closely when Paul speaks to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, that Paul is convinced he is innocent of the blood of all men, that, that he has dispatched his duty. He is the watchman that sounded the alarm, and he is not guilty of their blood should they persist in their rebellion because he has told them the truth, and he's told them repeatedly, and he's told them passionately, and he's told them convincingly that Jesus is the Christ. And so it was time for him to move on to there where God would bless with the salvation of many. And we're told there, uh, verse 8, that many are, going, are, are converted. And then look at uh, verse 9, another vision. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I'm with you, no one will attack you, no one will harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Several, several things there. Now, that was a specific message to a specific messenger for a specific time, okay? Uh, because, yes, Paul was not abused. He was still opposed, but he wasn't abused in Corinth. As he stayed there, we find out, for 18 months, he, he stays there uh, preaching and teaching uh, the Word of God. And so remember from 1 Corinthians 2, I arrived in fear and trembling. He'd probably been there a few weeks ago. Okay, here we go again. Uh, pack your bags, guys. We're going to be moving down the road. And God says, no, 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 no. I'm going to protect you. And so it may serve God to remove protection from His messengers, and it may be God's will to put in place protection for His messengers. It is not a blanket guarantee that all that go out to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ will be protected from harm. There have been thousands of those who proclaim the truth over the course of history who have been harmed by those who oppose the gospel. Specific word to a specific place and a specific time. Now, it is true that ultimately no harm will ever come to the people of God. Because what? He is our good shepherd. His rod and his staff, it does comfort us. We may walk through that valley of the shadow of death, but we will not fear any evil because he's with us. He's going to prepare a table for us even in the presence of our enemies. And so God will ultimately protect us, but in the providence of our life, great suffering may come to us even death. It's not an absolute, blank, you know, hey, as long as I'm doing the will of God, I'm protected. You're protected as long as God wants you to be protected. You'll be alive as God wants you to be alive. And God gets finished of you, you'll die, and you'll be glad about it, okay? Come on now. Amen. All right. So, why should we worry about our life? Who of you, by your anxieties, by your worry, can add a hair to your head? You can't, can you? Okay. All right. So, do not be afraid. Go on speaking.
parallel, don't be silent, positive, negative. I'm with you. No, the result of me being with you, no one's going to attack you. Why? For I have many people in the city. So there was already people that heard the gospel and they were saved and they were waiting for Paul to come and form a church, right? Wrong. Because God had chosen before all worlds were created that there would be some in the city of Corinth that would be of the elect. And when they heard the word of truth, they would believe and they would be sealed with God's Holy Spirit. God's sovereign plan was unfolding in and through the life of the Apostle Paul. That those that were appointed, Acts 13, 48, to eternal life would believe the truth when they heard it. That's the nature of evangelism that God has many wherever we go, and He will save them because we proclaim this gospel, this word of truth, this imperishable seed of the new birth. Now, I want to be clear. I'm as, I'm as sinful as y'all in my worries and my anxiety. The sovereignty of God does not remove me from the realm of my responsibility. Whatever it is, in the physical realm, in the spiritual realm, whatever, whatever relational realm, I have responsibilities. And indeed, I am responsible to do what? Preach the gospel. To tell people about Jesus. That is what I am charged to do. That is not in any shape, form, or fashion some kind of statement. Well, I guess God's going to save them. He ought to save them. Yeah, I'll just sit here and watch ESPN. No. Where to go? Until we're to go and make disciples. We're to go and preach uh, the gospel, which is exactly what the apostle uh, Paul did. And so we see that God had a plan for him there in uh, that great city. He certainly would be troubled by the church at Corinth, but he would not be uh, harmed uh, by them uh, there. And so in verse 11, we are told that he stayed a year and six months, 18 months, teaching the Word of God. Teaching the Word of God. It's interesting that here, instead of preaching uh, Caruso, something like that, uh, he, he uses the word didasco to instruct, to, to give uh, ample content, the, the body of truth, the, the faith once and for all uh, delivered to the saints, that, that as the gospel is preached and the disciples are made, he's doing what Jesus commanded to teach them whatsoever I have commanded you. That is what we do. I mean, we see very much a, a structure and a methodology of what we do in the church, that where God places us to teach the Word of God, to teach that which is uh, once and for all delivered to the saints, to teach Titus 2.11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training, and that, that word is padusa, having to do with child rearing, of, of disciplining and shaping your, your children, training us. What, what process are we in as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ? We're in the process of being trained to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present 
age, in this present evil age, to, to, to be the light in the darkness, to, be the, to the, be the salt in this world, to be those that will speak the truth in a world of lies. Again, to be the light in an ever-darkening world. And so we teach the Word of God so that God's Spirit may work in us, that by grace we would be trained to say no to the godless agenda to this world, of this world. And it is a godless agenda. One of the things in teaching the people of God and trying to cause them to, compel them to live lives distinct from the world, that the godlessness of the world often looks appealing. Does it not? To, to take up the, the, the world's principles and to, uh, to, to embrace its priorities so often looks appealing. And I want to speak specifically to, to, to the younger people, but it applies to the older ones too. That ungodliness is always, it always has been a dead end road. It ends in destruction. We could, we could go down every category that we might uh, unpack in terms of, of sin and sinful behaviors. And folks, you can get sinful habits ingrained in your life at a young age, uh, including substance habits that you will wrestle with for the rest of your life. And so we, we need to embrace this concept of being trained, and it's a constant, it is a daily, it is the balance of our lives that we would renounce the ungodliness of this world and its passions, its desires. And even for old folks, we look at the world and we covet sometimes the toys that the world has, do we not? And how we need to discipline our minds and live in a way that is self-controlled. Again, that, that, that sounds kind of austere, but please hear me. A life without, I'll call it spirit-controlled, spirit-filled self-control is a life of slavery. You will be enslaved by something or someone. You will be. You, you will serve, Bob Dylan saying. you got to serve somebody. You're going to. And either you will renounce ungodliness you will put to death the worldly passions, the godless passions of this world, and you will practice godly self-control and live in a way that pleases God, or you will be destroyed by all of the above. And so there's a constant call to persuade you. Now, all right, well, Tim, you just gave me some great information. I'm going to think about it. and It's nice that, that we know that now. No, I'm trying to persuade you that this is the only way to live, that this gospel is the power of God to salvation, to an eternal life that is a quality of life long before you see Jesus. And so, we follow the pattern. We teach the Word of God among the people of God. Well, verse 12, Paul is accused by his enemies, imagine that. Uh, those Jews, you can't say they're quitters. They stay after him. They indict him. It's an interesting indictment. Uh, they bring him before the proconsul. Just an interesting bit of history here. Uh, Achaia was a senatorial 
province at the time of Paul's visit, which means they were governed by a proconsul. Previously, they had been an imperial province, and they had been governed by praetors. Macedonia was still an imperial province, and Paul says that when he got in trouble in Macedonia, he went before the praetors. But here he goes beyond the proconsul, which, which again, what does it say? The Bible's truth. The Bible's accurate. Luke got it right under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so he's brought, brought before the tribu tribunal, and the, the charge is he's violating Roman law, okay? And wisely, Galileo said, I'm not interested in that. That's y'all's problem. As, as the head of the Roman government here, I don't see a problem. We're tolerant of various religious views. We're, we're, we're not going to get involved in this uh, uh, intramural debate between uh, you Jews. And at least for the time frame, now remember, this is about 51, 52 A.D. Who's quickly going to come on the scene? A man by the name of Nero that's going to put thousands of Christians to death. And he wasn't the only one, but that's the one we remember. And so... He says, I'm not concerned about this. Y'all go work it out. And it, it, it really established an important precedent for the gospel being proclaimed there in uh, the Roman Empire. And so he really, I guess in our way of, of speaking, uh, he doesn't adjudicate, he doesn't uh, take uh, the case. And so uh, he, run, he runs the whole crowd out. And then notice there in verse uh, 17, uh, they, they seize the Jews, uh, turn on Sosthenes, the, the ruler of the synagogue, and they beat him. And uh, Galileo, again, that's y'all's business. That's what you want to do. That's how you want to behave. Have, have at it. But I am not uh, interested uh, in, in that. And so as we will see later in the book of Acts, as much as we do not want to be involved with civil courts in any shape, form, or fashion. Okay? That, that is our preference. But we see, in Paul's case, at least on two occasions, that he takes advantage of the contemporary law for the sake of the advance of the gospel. Uh, there's an interesting, I guess you'd call it a documentary, uh, coming out later this year. I think it's called Essential Church. It's from John MacArthur's uh, church. It's going to detail their battle with the uh, People's Republic of California. Now, that was funny. Come on, I've said it before. Go ahead and giggle. All right. But, again, where they went toe-to-toe -to -toe over all of the nonsense that was going on in California about shutting churches down, and they won the court case. And that type of thing, as much as we, we don't want to be involved with that, okay, if, if we can avoid it, but there are times that you take advantage of the system that God has placed you in for the sake of the future of, uh, of the gospel. And so, um, and we're, we're, we're going to be pressed. I've, I've told you this before, that, that Christians, in, in, in your job, we've already seen it, you're going to be coerced uh, in, in, in the business realm. Uh, uh, there's going to be all kind of pressure brought upon us to capitulate to the godless agenda of the current world order, okay? And so we need to be prepared for that. We will not be the first generation. But as I said in my opening, if the gospel...
could change the hearts of the pagans in Corinth so many hundreds of years ago, it can still change the hearts of the pagans in the United States of America and every other place in this modern world. All right. Okay, Paul is going to close out, really, and, and it's, it, it, I missed this. This is one of those things. I'm, I'm reading the passage and you know, reading it daily and trying to master the passage beginning there in verse 18, and I go, whoa, wait, what happened? Huh? I mean, it's so subtle. The second missionary journey ends and the third one begins. And I mean, you know, I would want at least a marching band to welcome me home and a marching band to send me back out or something. Just, you know, you got to have something. Give me a cake or I don't know. But, but Paul stays in Corinth. He does that which God has charged him to do. He's, he's uh, reasoning, he's persuading, he's testifying, he's occupied with the Word, he's, a fa he's facing opposition, he's teaching the Word of God. Okay? And so he remains there for these 18 months. He continues uh, there. And then he leaves, he takes his friends, uh, his business associates, uh, Priscilla and Aquila, and uh, he goes to the uh, eastern port city of Sincrea, and he cuts his hair. And I, I'm not sure what's going on with the hair uh, as far as a some type of Nazarite vow or, 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 or whatever. Uh, but uh, he does that. He, he travels uh, across the, uh, the uh, Aegean and, and arrives at Ephesus. He leaves them there, and he makes the promise, I'm going to come back, and he sure does. And he shakes them up in Ephesus when he comes back. We'll be looking at that in, in, in future days. But he's planning on returning. He sails down to Caesarea. And he, he wants to go to the mother church because the mother church is going to uh, await him with open arms. And they're going to be glad to see this great proclaimer of the gospel to the Gentile world. He's making such great inroads into the unbelieving world. And Gentiles are being saved. And we Jews are just thrilled with it. He went up and greeted the church. That's it. That's it. I mean... Hey, Paul, we're glad to see you. How long are you going to stay? Good, yeah, okay, go. I don't know if they were chapped by all these Gentiles being saved. It's just, that, that, is, a, that is a strange bit of uh, silence there, how little is said. He comes in, I mean, does he even get to do his laundry there to Jerusalem laundromat? And he turns around and begins his third missionary journey. And he goes back, and he really goes to kind of where he wanted to go when he wound up going to Europe. He goes back into, uh, into Asia Minor. He goes back to Antioch. Then he starts going north uh, and east, and he goes into Galatia and Phrygia, Phrygia, and he's going to continue his missionary endeavor. He's going through some of the places he'd already been, and he's strengthening those disciples. How's he doing it? By teaching the Word of God by proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ. That's how he's going to encourage and strengthen those because what? They're living in pagan cities. They're facing opposition uh, to uh, the gospel and to the way uh, that they would live. And so he goes and he strengthens them. And to be sure, he is ready to engage in this third, in some sense, final great challenge of taking the gospel uh, throughout uh, the known world. And so we see... Uh, the closure of the second missionary journey, the beginning of the third, uh, 
beginning, surely, uh, with great expectations. Okay, God, you're going to send me. I, I want to go to places nobody's ever been. You're sending me to Europe. That, that sounds great. Uh, he goes to, uh, to Philippi. He gets put in prison after a beating. He goes to Thessalonica. There's a riot, and he's forced to leave. He goes to Berea, and people from Thessalonica follow him, threatens him. Uh, the mob tries to, uh, to kill him. Uh, at Athens, he's ridiculed. Uh, at Corinth, he has to go before the tribunal. But God is working all things according to the counsel of his own will. God has taken him through these adversities, and I think that he would reflect upon them as he wrote the second Corinthian letter. He goes through the whole laundry list. Here's all the things that happened, both persecution and just various afflictions. And then he sums it all up. What? These things happened to me so that I would not rely upon myself I was tested beyond every measure available. My capacity was exhausted. I had nothing. I had no resource. I had no strength. I had no energy. But these things happened to me so that I would not rely upon myself, but upon God, who does what? Raises the dead. Where is our confidence today? Is it in our strength, our wisdom, our, our abilities, uh, our courage? We see how that worked out for Peter. Worked out well for him, didn't he? I'll never leave Jesus. I'll lay down my life for you. He learned, didn't he? These things happen. We live in the current wicked age to demonstrate that we're still a people that believe the gospel is true. There's still the power of God's salvation. And that we're not relying upon ourselves, but upon God, who raises the dead. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your truth, for the demonstration of your power, of your faithfulness to those whom you call through this powerful, life-changing, life-giving gospel. God, we live in a difficult time, as has every Christian that's preceded us. The times are always difficult. Uh, there's always those that will oppose the gospel. Uh, the gospel has never been that which the unbelieving world willingly and joyfully and universally receives. And so, God, I pray that we would indeed uh, to determine to determine to know nothing among the people of this fallen world, this fallen generation than Jesus Christ and Him crucified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.